Chapter Fourteen of the Real Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It is indeed a curious and noteworthy circumstance, the tolerance shown by the professorial class towards Oscar Wilde, even amongst those, both in England and abroad, who may hold that he was justly convicted a tolerance which almost equals that of the medical people who consider moral aberrations of that kind as amongst the diseases for which as yet they have discovered no remedies beyond the palliative bromidium the university folk of course read widely recall the past history of the world and understand what to the ordinary individual is incomprehensible and therefore terrifying hence this tolerance a notable exception is of course sir herbert warren president of magdalen mr warren's professions of esteem for oscar wilde when the latter was his contemporary at magdalen were multiple and great lord alfred douglas relates in his book that lady queensbury having written to the president of magdalen to ask him if he considered wilde a suitable friend for her son quote, the president in reply sent her a long letter in which he gave wilde a very high character praised his great gifts and achievements of scholarship and literature and assured her that i might consider myself lucky to have obtained the favourable notice of such an eminent man Unquote. since then like many others of wilde's former friends sir herbert warren has seen reason to modify his appreciation of this eminent man there might be said things but does not bossuet extol le grand art de ne pas tout dire and so with a shrug of the shoulders forward i often wonder what in the yonder land poor oscar wilde thinks about it all about us all about the courtiers of his first and of his latest hours and his revival and rebirth and the way the philistine has been whistled back and how to-day from behind the ambushing hedges of repudiation mercantile faces now peer up ecstatically at his apogee there died not very long ago in capri quote, that island of beauty all burned up by the sun unquote, an italian poet whose name was giuseppe vanicola and who as a gentle lady who was his neighbour writes me was only about thirty-five years old with long snow-white hair but had a young and beautiful face and such young eyes well giuseppe vanicola tells us in an article which appeared in the naples mattino after his death articolo postumo that in nineteen o five he had a conversation with oscar wilde and he records this conversation but unfortunately did not ask him questions on the subjects indicated above on which my wonder lasts it was at the house of andre gide people had dined a poco a poco only four were left gide van nicola the belgian painter theo van ruysenberg and an quote, intellectual lady who acted as writing medium unquote. wilde's wraith was evoked from the yonderland and the first thing he communicated was doriano miha tradito 
dorian has betrayed me jude asked him his opinion about his trial and wilde said it was typically english perjurers hypocrites puritans vanicola said thou knowest the cultus i have for thy works i beg thee to express an opinion on me wilde answered thanks vanicola for the harmonies thou hast thought out and written about me roysenberg said we would like to know your opinion on life beyond the grave wilde answered a chaotic confusion of fluid nebulosities a cloac of souls and the essences of organic life jeed then said and to the existence of god wilde answered that is still for us the great mystery i cannot en passant refrain from expressing the wonder whether the author of from magdalen to magdalen haply pacing his maternal cloisters ever hears whispering the wonderful voice of the man whom he admired greatly many years ago whispering in some such words as these oh well for him who lives at ease with garnered gold in wide domain nor heeds the plashing of the rain the crashing down of forest trees oh well for him who ne'er hath known the travail of the hungry years a father grey with grief and tears a mother weeping all alone but well for him whose feet hath trod the weary road of toil and strife yet from the sorrow of his life builds ladders to be nearer god these lines which were written by oscar wilde at magdalen in eighteen seventy six and were originally published in the dublin university magazine for september of that year seem to have been composed in that spirit of prophecy or foresight which to true poets is given he indeed was to know the travail of the hungry years he too was to have a mother weeping all alone and he too from the sorrows of his life was to build ladders to be nearer god william blake had this intuition this foresight this power of prophecy in a pre-eminent degree and it occurs to me that the above lines of oscar wilde may in some measure have been suggested to him by some reminiscence of something that william blake wrote i remember that when they were first read to me i being ignorant of their author's name pronounced them the work of blake so if here oscar wilde borrowed the style and the philosophy of william blake he seems with them to have acquired also that power of baudemont which enabled the boy blake as he and his father were leaving the studio of the magnificent ryland engraver to his majesty to say quote, i do not like the look of that man i think that he will come to be hanged Unquote writing these lines in a room on the walls of which there are many specimens of the art of ryland who it will be remembered did come to be hanged i am constantly reminded of this anecdote and as often i reflect how entirely in me was lacking that power which was possessed both by william blake and oscar wilde for never once until the avalanche descended and overwhelmed my friend in eighteen ninety five had i any inkling of what the future held in store for him 
his ultimate fate was the very last denouement to his life that i could have predicted of course had his aberrations been revealed to me it would have been easy to foretell disaster but these were concealed with a discretion that almost amounted to the cunning with which maniacs are able to shroud from their friends the demon hags that ride them on that first night in paris he appeared to me one of the most wonderful beings that i had ever met and it seemed to me that there was no prize which the world offers to endeavour and genius which is another word for endeavour to which he might not aspire this opinion was more than confirmed when next morning having made the long journey from pump street passy down to his hotel on the quai voltaire i spent several hours in his company i knew him brilliant beyond description and be it remembered that i was then living in a circle of the most brilliant conversationalists in europe for i was a habitué of victor hugo's house where one met everybody who counted i had yet to discover that he had constrained himself to that constant labour and industry which as balzac says is the law of art as it is the law of creation any misgivings that i may have had that here was a foppish dilettante of letters spending his life like those semi-artists of whom balzac writes in talking himself were immediately dispelled when i came into his sitting-room a fine apartment commanding a view of the seine and the louvre on the first floor of the hotel de quai voltaire he was dressed as i have described in his balzacian gabardine but here affectation began and ended his table was overlaid with papers he was then working on his duchess of padua and a glance at these sheets showed that many of the lines had been written over and over again laboriousness and the function of the whetstone were apparent like count d'orsay's ties i said these i suppose are your failures the only accessory on that writing-table which suggested the dilettante was a huge box of cigarettes and for an ash-tray a large blue china bowl half full already of stumps and ashes some words of zola then occurred to me where the author of l'assommoir speaks with contempt of those men of letters who turn out their prose while quote, smoking cigarettes and tickling their beards unquote. these words occur in a passage where he also speaks of quote, the intolerable weight of a pen unquote. i have been working all the morning he said so now we will go out to lunch i was disappointed with this invitation for i had hoped to be with him chez lui and for lunch the hotel could have supplied us quite adequately but oscar wilde had still at that time a balance at a parisian bank the remainder of what he had brought over from his american lecturing tour and nothing would satisfy him then except the most expensive restaurants he never took any meals at his hotel beyond the first petit déjeuner except when his funds had run out the impression he produced upon me that first day was that he was a man of considerable fortune he lived en prince and was so reckoned by the hotel servants and restaurant waiters 
the fact was that beyond his balance at the paris bank and his expectations from mary anderson on account of the duchess of padua which was being written to her order he had apparently no means whatever in those days the cafe de paris in the avenue de la opera which was owned by one of the bignons the overlords of fashionable parisian catering was a house which was reputed to be exclusively patronised by millionaires and it was to this house that oscar wilde took his guest a poor clerk no wise great or fair who would have been amply satisfied with a luncheon chez duval which would not have cost one-tenth of what he paid for our déjeuner at the café de paris i remember mildly remonstrating when i saw whither he was taking me but he said that it beloved the artist and littérateur to show the bourgeois that he must abandon his idea that the man of letters is invariably a needy bohemian dwelling in a garret and for the most part starving it's a duty we owe to the dignity of letters he said with his inimitable boyish and gleeful laugh many years later a similar remark was made to me in the palatial restaurant of the plaza hotel in new york where i was dining with an american author reputed to turn out nothing but best sellers i drew his attention to the fact that there were millionaires on every side of our table indeed for jewels coruscating all around us we might have been dining in aladdin's cave and that's just the reason he said quote, why i like coming here just to show these people that though nothing but a writer i can put up as good a dinner to any friend of mine as the richest amongst them it's a sort of education for them and that being laid down let's have another martini Unquote. i take it that zola's extravagant expenditure on furnishing and decorating his houses an extravagance which provoked the irony of mr george moore was prompted largely for personally zola was a man inclined to frugality by the same wish to épater les bourgeois in the case of oscar wilde however the love of extravagance appears to have been instinctive he might endeavour to explain and palliate his folly in the way suggested above it remains certain that the mania of prodigality held him and drove him powerless to resist there are in j stuart hayes masterly life of the amazing emperor heliogabalus many passages which mutatis mutandis seem strangely applicable to this case also indeed i will go so far as to say that for a comprehension of the real oscar wilde this book or lampridius's life or other classical works which deal with the amazing elagabalus might be studied with advantage the psychology of extravagance writes mr stuart hay quote, has not yet been examined so we are still free to condemn what we do not understand megalomania we all know something about and can all condemn as experts unquote. Oscar Wilde's extravagance and eccentricity in dress find their parallel, mutatis mutandis, in that other marvellous boy who perished in pride, and in this connection there may be quoted from Mr. Stuart Hay a passage not exempt from irony. Of course, he writes, quote, 
it is not a pleasant taste this overlaying of the body with an inordinate display of wealth even when done merely for the honour of one's god as elagabalus protested unfortunately it is still known both in the plutocratic and sacerdotal worlds certain minds still revolt still see its snobbery vanity and degeneracy are even foolish enough to imagine that the personal vanity of such functionaries will one day renounce what is their main means of attraction Unquote. it is quite possible that oscar wilde who was steeped in the paganism of rome and greece and to whom no doubt the career and character of the amazing emperor were as familiar as to us are the personalities and performances of the more sedulously puffed of our contemporaries may instinctively have set out to imitate in his small way a personage who must have aroused in his mind if all that is said is true an extraordinary interest i may say however that i never once heard him refer to marcus aurelius antoninus though many were his remarks on nero whom heliogabalus so much surpassed in all that was undesirable he modelled the dressing of his hair after he had shorn the long locks of the aesthetic period on the coiffure of nero in the bust in the louvre and in one of his earlier letters to me speaks of how he is amazing london with it he dressed as he lived as though a man of very large means he had abundant jewellery though not offensively displayed his cigarette case was of silver or of gold i do not remember that he ever carried a watch or haply it had joined the barclay gold medal chez matante he had a silver match-box with a huge opal in the lid and on his fingers were noticeable rings including a green scarab the loss of which in paris in those early days was the great grief of my life it may sound absurd to compare oscar wilde to heliogabalus or nero though of course intellectually he towered above both those gentlemen but in extravagance both of dress and expenditure he appears to have imitated them as far as his means allowed of but of course while marcus aurelius antoninus had one hundred million pounds to spend every year of the four years of his reign i cannot leave mr j stuart hayes book without quoting two more passages which refer to a side of my subject's character with which knowing nothing about it in connection with him i am incompetent to deal i am in entire agreement with their author since the world began writes mr hay quote, no one has been wholly wicked no one wholly good the truth about elagabalus must lie between the two extremes admitting however a congenital twist towards the evil tendencies of his age he had habits which are regarded by scientists less as vices than as perversions but which at that time were accepted as a matter of course men were then regarded as virtuous when they were brave when they were honest when they were just and this boy did despite his hereditary taint show more than flashes of these virtues the idea of using virtuous in its later sense occurred if at all in jest merely as a synonym for a eunuch it was the matron and the vestal who were supposed to be virtuous 
and their virtue was often supposititious in the roman sense of the word then oscar wilde who certainly was brave honest and just was virtuous in a pre-eminent degree Quote, quite a cursory study of authorities on psychology such as kraft ebing block farrell moll etc will show us that characters like elagabalus have occasionally appeared and are still known in history they are almost curiosities of nature and are rarely if ever responsible for their own instincts neither are they cruel nor evil by nature to-day we are inclined to regard the romantic friendships exhibited in the stories of david and jonathan heracles and hylas apollo and hyacinth to mention no others as the outcome of somewhat similar natures and we decry some of the noblest patriots tyrannicides lawgivers and heroes in the early days of greece because they regarded the bond of male friendship as higher and nobler than what they called the sensual love for women or because they received friends and comrades with peculiar honour on account of their staunchness in friendship nevertheless psychologists have noted that this tendency towards the more elevated forms of homosexual feeling is still to be found more or less developed amongst religious leaders and other persons with strong ethical instincts it is only therefore when this tendency occurs in slightly abnormal minds that we excite our passions against men for whom the only fitting reward is an application of the stake and faggot without further inquiry to the vulgar-minded all persons who present deformities whether physical or mental are subjects of derision and hatred to those who realise something of the disabilities under which these unfortunates are labouring they are objects of either active or passive sympathy in the abstract of course should the insane the leprous or even the man of genius get in our way we as normal persons feel ourselves justified in ridding the world of its nuisance Unquote now here may be the proper place to quote that memorable answer made by oscar wilde in the course of the first trial before mr justice charles to the question put to him by mr gill what is the love that dare not speak its name the love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there was between david and jonathan such as plato made the very basis of his philosophy and such as you find in the sonnets of michelangelo and shakespeare it is that deep spiritual affection that is as pure as it is perfect it dictates and pervades great works of art like those of shakespeare and michelangelo and those two letters of mine such as they are it is in this century misunderstood so much misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name and on account of it i am placed where i am now it is beautiful it is fine it is the noblest form of affection there is nothing unnatural about it it is intellectual and it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man where the elder man has intellect and the younger man has all the joy hope and glamour of life before him 
that it should be so the world does not understand the world mocks at it and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it these words it may here be recorded created a sensation in court as the author of oscar wilde three times tried relates quote, as he stopped speaking there was loud applause mingled with some hisses in the public gallery of the court mr justice charles at once said if there is the slightest manifestation of feeling i shall have the court cleared there must be complete silence preserved the speech of wilde was declared by some to be the finest speech of an accused man since that of paul before agrippa it thrilled everyone in the court mr robert buchanan considered it marvellous End of chapter 14